Hi there, and welcome to the Sanctuary Podcast. Our vision is to find sanctuary in Christ, and then to be sanctuary to each other, and express sanctuary to this city. And so, for us, success is loving well, one person at a time. And if we can help you in any way, please do feel free to reach out, jump onto our website, sanctuarysf.com, and we would love to connect. Anyway, back to the podcast. Hallelujah. Well, um, good morning, everybody. If you have a Bible, could you grab it? As a church, we love the Bible, to state the obvious. It is the Word of God, and it has wonderful authority. Um, We have been making the point over the last few weeks in this series that um, every human from a young age ask yourself the question, who am I? And we answer that question by putting like labels on ourselves as we grow up throughout our life. The problem is all those labels lead to either pride, if we think we're doing well with the label, or despair, if we don't. And we do this, right? The labels that we tend to put on ourselves, the identities, the ways that we have a sense of self, tend to lead to either pride or despair, which is exhausting, either one. And Paul here in this amazing book, oh, Ephesians, what he is doing, and this book is going to come on to look in chapters two and three on issues of race and integration and unity despite diversity. The book's going to look at spiritual warfare. It's going to look at the issue of ethics. It's going to look at the issues of marriage and family life. It's an incredibly rich book. But right at the beginning, Paul is very, very keen writing to this church in Ephesus that they understand when they became a Christian, even if they were little ones or older ones, even if it wasn't dramatic, when they became a Christian, their identity, their labels were cosmically, as it were, forever changed. The way that God now sees them is so different to how it was before. It wasn't just a a small change. It was a massive change. And today we're going to come to verse 7, and we're going to look at a label, uh, a particular word, redeemed, redemption, Um, that is incredibly rich. Many of us don't always quite understand what it means. Honestly, it's not a common word in the 21st century in the West, but it's a hugely rich biblical word. What is our identity? How do I understand how God sees me, my sense of self? You are redeemed. Okay, that's our second label. And here we go. Let's read verse 7. Verse 7 of chapter 1. In him, that's Jesus, we, that's Christians, have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. Let me read it again. There's a lot in there. (laughs) Verse 7. In him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace, 
that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And turn over in your Bibles just a few pages to Colossians. We also see the idea of redemption is talked about by Paul here. Beautiful way of putting it here in verse 13 of chapter 1. Colossians 1 verse 13. Paul says, For he has rescued us from the domain, sorry, from the dominion of darkness and has brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So what does it mean in the most simple terms to be redeemed? If you're writing notes, it means this, to be rescued at a price. That's about as short and punchy as I can possibly make it. If you want a fridge magnet, it means that you have been rescued or set free from slavery is one particular type of that rescue although the actual term can refer to lots of different types of captivity and interestingly at this season where even having brian with us a few moments ago and in this at this time in this nation where we are thinking about the impact of european slavery and american slavery and how even now we work through the impact of it it is incredibly helpful that one of the biggest ways of understanding what it is to be a Christ follower is that you and I were all once enslaved to sin and have been set free. In a spiritual sense, the Bible doesn't pull away from this, this terminology despite the sensitivity of it. It says actually every single person is either still under that slavery or if you're a Christian, you have been, by the grace of Jesus, taken out of it. So it's a very, very important term here. And when I think about that, I don't know if you're like me, I have at least a couple of reactions when I think about, oh, I'm redeemed. So I've been set free. Um, I've been rescued at a price. Two reactions. Number one, I kind of feel um, it, it feels a little bit irrelevant, if I'm honest, because Okay, you're saying, oh, Paul, that I was once enslaved to sin and now I'm set free. Great. I don't really feel like I was that enslaved to sin. I don't feel like I was under that its power, particularly. Some of us fall into that camp, and so it feels irrelevant when we hear this term. It's like being told some good news and you didn't really resonate with the bad news. <laughs> you're like, big, big wow, great. Um, number two... The other reaction we often have is the opposite extreme. Some of you feel incredibly trapped by your thought life and your inner reactions to things, your inability to say no, your compulsions, your behaviors. Actually, you kind of want to be different, but you can't actually change. People in your life push your buttons and they still push your buttons. And you've told Jesus about this and you're like, I don't feel free, Jesus. So it's not helpful I feel tantalized, you could put it like that. I feel either this is irrelevant. Some of us, though, feel tantalized. Like, don't say I'm free, Jesus, when I do not feel free. When I look at my life, I don't feel free from greed or from comparison or from, from jealousy. Yeah? And so both these two reactions, listen, they have one common um, negative state of being that they both lead us to. Paralysis. We either just don't engage with this because it seems irrelevant or we don't engage with the idea of being set free because honestly it's just too close to the bone and we'd rather just get through this life 
and cope. Thank you very much, Tom. I've heard this before. Apparently, Jesus can set us free. I don't really, in my heart of hearts, believe it. And I still think he's real, perhaps, but I don't honestly think I can be set free. And that is exactly where the enemy wants you to be. If you can just be in paralysis, not doing anything either way, he's like, fantastic, high five. That's a, I just want you not engaging with it. So I want to say, be alert. If this is one of the most significant biblical ideas of what it is to be born again, is that you have been redeemed. If it doesn't create in you a sense of joy and excitement, I honestly believe God wants you to taste a bit more of your inheritance today. And in this one verse, there's two fantastically helpful steps that we can all take towards actually tasting that identity that I am redeemed and and it not being some old-fashioned word or an irrelevant word or a tantalizing word but a word that brings life here are the two steps number one and this is both in verse seven number one you need to see the impact in your own life of your previous enslavement to sin So the first step is something to do with how you actually view yourself. We've been saying this again and again, um, that, you know, all knowledge that's of use in this life is both knowledge of God and knowledge of self. I can't remember who said that. Someone can put it in the chat box. Someone very famous. Um, So you need to know yourself. You need to see the impact. Are you aware of the impact of your previous enslavement to sin? Because it can still live in your bones metaphorically number two you then need to see and taste the nature of your true new master jesus so then your eyes need to look at jesus you need to see yourself more accurately and then see jesus more accurately and that's what this verse so helpfully uh leads us into so first of all then step one and this is in uh the first half of verse seven you need to see the impact of your previous enslavement to sin so what i'm trying to say is this is that for example in romans chapter 8 verse 1 it says this therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in christ jesus because the law of jesus of life has set you free has set you free you were once Uh, in slavery and now you've been set free it's the same idea colossians 6 verse 20 says you are no longer your own you are bought at a set with me price same idea you're not your own so paul is relentlessly wanting us to understand that what does it mean to be a christian what's my identity okay christianity 101 is this is that this the bible says this and just prepare yourself because this is not a politically correct thing to say so please if you're watching this and uh you know this will create a response but it is it is thoroughly biblical the bible says that every single person in this world is ultimately under the domain of sin darkness and even satan himself that is what jesus repeatedly said it's what the bible says and we tend to think of being a christian as just like a choice it's just this little part of my life But the Bible is incredibly dramatic, actually. And it says, no, 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 that every single person before being born again is born into, to quote one old hymn, Adam's helpless race. 
So sin is very real. Satan is very real. And the Bible says that he is currently allowed by God for this season to have huge influence in this world. So our previous state, if you're a Christian here today, was that you were in bondage to sin and Satan that that was a state that you couldn't get yourself out of, that you and I were all trapped in that. And that thirdly, even though the Bible now says that we are, as Christians, set free, we are redeemed. Listen, this is the big idea. It can, that sense of almost slavery to sin, that sense of it's in, the trauma of that previous uh, situation in your being, can still live on in your life. Even though you and I are now set free as Christians, we can still live as if we're not set free. It's incredibly profound. Write that down, please, if you're writing anything down. You can live as if you are not free, even though the Bible says you are radically radically different your status your identity your position the land in which you now live metaphorically is as different as you could conceivably express and yet you can still live without realizing the impact of your previous season of enslavement so that's why when you read for example in the old testament israel is 400 years in slavery in egypt they're set free. It's a famous story. Read it in Exodus. But what happens next? This is the really fascinating part is even though they are set free by God himself, they don't have the hardwiring after so much time in slavery to access this new relationship with Jesus. They, don't, they can't do it. They keep going back to the old gods. They keep going back to not trusting. That's the, the most fundamental element is they are not trusting their new God. And so they wander, they grumble, they want to go back to their old slavery. And that is a profound picture of Christians who can be set free. Tom Shaw can actually be out of the land of slavery through Christ's work. And yet the trauma of that, that time of being still under a previous taskmaster, under Pharaoh, and you know, Pharaoh was an absolute nightmare for hundreds of years. Each different Pharaoh over Israel. You know, the pyramids, average pyramid takes 27 million bricks. Who built those bricks? Many of them were built by, by Israel, by Jewish slaves. And they, that was a brutal existence. And when they came into slavery, they couldn't access now. They couldn't trust this new God. They were so hardwired to see themselves as slaves. They couldn't almost enjoy what it was to be a son or a daughter. I wonder if any of you guys resonate with that. Whether your actual functional life feels more like an enslavement, like a, I have to, I have to have control, Tom. I have to have some sense of success. I have to be needed. I, I have to have things perfect if you're an Enneagram one. I, I have to. If you find yourself in your life with a have to voice in your life, there's a real chance that, that the impact of your previous enslavement 
is still in your bones and you haven't quite necessarily seen it. In the book Redeeming Love, which I mention all the time, it is an incredible retelling of a similar idea where the main character, Sarah, she grows up orphaned by eight, forced into prostitution for 20 years. And to survive, she learns this way of living. When she is rescued by an amazing Christ-like figure called Michael Hosea, who loves her, who is kind over her, who wants to just honor her, who has done everything to redeem her, the real tragedy of the story is she's so hardwired to live as a slave, she can't access the kindness. She can't trust him. She can't receive her new identity and you're like almost when you read the book you're like oh sarah trust him trust him don't go back to those old ways don't do it and it's weird because i see myself in it i'm like I'm, i never was a physical prostitute but i was someone who tended to want others to love me so much i would do anything for that and now jesus is with me and he's like tom you have my approval i've set you free i'm with you forever why why can't you access why can't you access my kindness to you? Why do you still want to go back and find some quasi-love through good works? Anyone here identify with that? Yeah, where, where you know you're technically free, but somehow the old way of doing things seems so much more sort of real. And that's why I notice here the language of redemption and blood and forgiveness is is telling us something it's telling us how serious this situation was it's like you know unless you a christian understand the magnitude of how serious our situation was before christ set us free that required literal blood being shed and forgiveness and redemption unless we understand the weight of these words we won't really um, take seriously the fact that so much of the New Testament is written to say, hey, listen, you are set free, but now, now God wants to help you understand and to see and to spot the, um, the symptoms that can still live in your being, in your body, in your mind, in your memory, in your reactions, in how you have to do certain things that are still actually you functionally living as if you were under that slavery. So let me ask you this question. What are the things that you feel potentially that you have to have? Even now, just take a moment. And the, the, a great way of understanding what those things are is the pressure test. What are the things that you feel like you have to have but interestingly, because they're, they're, not, they're not ultimately Jesus and his kindness, they ultimately lead to a kind of pressure. To a kind of pressure. You need them and you, you feel like you need them and you want them, but they actually can lead to a kind of pressure test or to a pressure. So let me, let me ask you, what are those things in your life right now? Tragically, the church can reinforce the message of the old slave master isn't that crazy do you know that religion which says you have to do certain things you have to be better you have to try hard that voice that voice is not the voice of your new wonderful king jesus 
it's not his voice. And yet it's, and yet we can confuse it. Some of you, as I was praying about this, listen, some of you, I promise you, I felt God say, are still, and it's so unconscious, are living practically listening to that voice and it's leading to pressure, to pressure. You, ha- you can't let them down. You have to be that person. You have to do that thing. A friend of mine recently said this. He said he noticed when he was growing up, on Thursday, it was his birthday as a little boy. And all the celebration was about and celebrating him as a little boy. And then he went to his dad's church on the Sunday. And all he heard about was how much God was so angry and disappointed because of the sin of the people of this world. And he was like, how come on a birthday I could be celebrated as a valuable being? Not perfect, but valuable and loved. And yet when I went to church, all I really felt was... God's angry with you and you need to do stuff and you need to be grateful. Church, tragically, can even reinforce the old voice. It's, in- it's incredible. Hey, listen, if you're taking notes, this is re- what I'm saying is this. Jesus, number one, he sees your imperfections. He sees them. He sees the sin. But he still loves you. Satan sees your sin. Your old taskmaster sees your sin and he hates you and he wants you to hate yourself and you to hate preferably people around you and definitely hate God as well. Now, you might think, Tom, this is all a little bit heavy, a bit crazy. I want to just lovingly challenge you. If you're anything like me, I'm 42, pushing 43. I have lived so fast and so on adrenaline. It has taken this long in my life to spot the symptoms, the impact in my mind and in my being and in my body even of where I am still at times often bombarded with lies. I don't know where they're from, either from myself or from the enemy or the world about myself that are actually much more like my old slave master than Jesus even though I've been a Christian 22 years. Let me just give you an illustration. This Wednesday morning, before 9am, I actually was trying to write down the main thoughts in my life. I came out to my cabin. I was trying to have a bit of time with Jesus. And these are some of the thoughts that came into my head. Tom, don't bother waiting on God today. He won't turn up as he did faithfully over the last few weeks. Don't bother doing it. You're just trying to be formulaic. Second thought. Hey, Tom, you should panic. You are way behind on the work that you've got for this week. You, you need to get going. You are really behind. Next thought. When you sent that Google invite to those friends, why did you just put your names in it? Why didn't you write the title of the subject, you fool? They'll think you're an idiot. Next thought. Oh, those certain people, they resent your life. They resent you having those certain blessings in your life. Yeah, 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 you think they're friends, but really they resent you, Tom. Next thought. Oh, you haven't actually got that many things in your calendar today. You're so lazy. That was five thoughts that normally I would not have even spotted. That's my point. And they go round and they round and they round. And we just jump like little, you know, lap dogs. 
So just take a moment. Take a moment. I'm going to give you a few moments of silence, which is a rare thing in our lives. And just, my, my first point is, is are you aware of those things that create pressure? Those voices, those feelings, those impressions, those compulsions that are still actually more akin to what it's like to live under a really harsh taskmaster rather than Jesus. Just take a few moments. If you've got any paper, you might scribble them down if anything comes to mind. Jesus, I want to pray before we move on for this beautiful church family, for any listening. Jesus, I want to thank you that when we look at your life, you never came to just condemn and to wag your finger. You came to set free. And I pray now for that revelation to flood our hearts and for lightness and joy and compassion actually with ourselves and patience with ourselves in line with your love for us to start to just sink into our beings a little bit more. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, final point, second point. We're going to then see the nature of our new master. Okay, I know the first bit's a bit introspective, but actually I don't apologize for that because I don't want you being beaten up by yourself all your life. Do you know what? You're not perfect, but listen, Jesus is crazy about you. He really is. You are fearfully and wonderfully made, do you know, Jared Ward. You really are. And Jessica and Sean and Morris and Hannah and everyone on this call. Jesus, I feel even now, his absolute deep love for you and his yearning for you to sounds crazy to agree with his love for you it doesn't mean that you don't see your own imperfections but you actually enter into that because what we see in the second part of this verse is actually telling us all about the nature of the one who has given us the redemption so our eyes now need to shift off ourselves onto him It says this, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Here we go, look, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. Okay, so what he is saying is, when he says in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom, three things there, three elements. The first thing he's saying is, God has redeemed you by his blood but before you start to feel all terribly guilty and like oh woe is me woe is me cost the blood of jesus god he's like this was done in accordance with the personality and the character of a rich lavish kind wise person so he's not he's wanting you to understand that although the seriousness of our previous situation was profound and awful and was very expensive to get us out of it, it wasn't like he was some like annoyed father getting you out of jail, you know, tutting at you. Like, I've got to pay the... He joyfully, wonderfully came up with this plan before he even made this world to lavish on you and me this incredible new state of being free and intimately joined with God forever. When it says in accordance with, 
I love that. In accordance with the riches of God's grace. I recently, a friend of mine said he was going to someone's, uh, someone else's for, for a meal, for dinner. And he just said this. He said, oh, but I'm going to pay this time. Because every time I go there, they always end up paying. And I said, oh, knowing the, the people he was talking about, I said, yeah, that's typical of them. They're so generous, aren't they? And he said, absolutely. And it's like that. It's in accordance with the generosity of God. It's like, oh, it's almost typical of God in the best sense. This rescue plan is in accordance with, it's in line with the personality of God. I love this. The riches of God's grace. This phrase here, riches, if you ever want to do a little a Bible search, it comes up throughout the New Testament. Riches, riches, riches of God's mercy, riches of God's power, riches of God's grace. It's a real Paul favourite. He loves the idea that God has almost overflowing resources in every single sense. The riches of God's grace, which he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. Now, let me ask you the question. When you hear the word lavish, what response do you have in your heart? Just take a moment. Is it, is it entirely positive? Or is there a little bit of a check? When I think about, oh, such and such, you know, Jenny, she's really, really lavish. Actually, I tend to feel a bit of a mix. I almost think, is she a little bit reckless? Is this an entirely good thing? that this person is so lavish, you know? And um, particularly, for example, if you've grown up, some of you have made it grown up with parents or people in your life who were very lavish, but really reckless. I know one person who grew up and his mum was incredibly reckless with the money. And so it made him feel very unsafe. So a God who is lavish, is that good news, Tom? Is that actually good news? Well, Notice what it says here as well. He lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. Isn't that a beautiful and actually unexpected sentence? Anyone else here spot that? He lavished it on us. It's this kind of extravagant, you know, over the top word with all wisdom and understanding. It's this combining of burning heart passion that Paul's expressing that God redeeming us was such a lavish thing but he did it with all wisdom and understanding he was a generous genius a perfectly planned plush provider he was someone who you know in sometimes in life there's certain things that it's actually really wise to spend a lot of money on Like, don't buy cheap. You know, certain things it's okay, but sometimes in life you're like, hey, it's actually really wise to spend a lot of money. Some of you are like, yeah, preach it, Tom. (laughs) That's my life mantra. (laughs) But it's kind of true. And that's a a really imperfect illustration, but it's kind of like God is like, he was so lavish. If we could only understand how ridiculously expensive It was for you to be set free, for you to be redeemed. But he did it with all wisdom and understanding. It's like the genius of God because for all eternity, he's going to have this incredible family, this redeemed family that brings glory to God that in a sense he couldn't have got any other way. All of our imperfections and our brokenness, although of course at one level none of us would ever want it to be there, but the upside of it is there is a glory that God gets 
through that expense that is so wise. The Bible says in other places that all of heaven is like in awe and amazement. The heavenlies are amazed when they look at the church, when they look at what God has done with really imperfect people. Your identity shocks heaven. Your identity doesn't shock you. You see yourself as whatever it might be. It actually brings like a gasp to the heavenly realms is what Ephesians tells us. Such is the grandeur. Such is the lavishness. It's like... He was, you know, when Jesus died, I'm sure Satan was like, what a fool God was. And when Christ came back from the dead, God was like, I am no fool. This was so expensive, so expensive, so lavish. But the wisdom of God that now this broken people are set free through the redeemed work of Jesus Christ. It's glorious. And, and, and I love the fact that, it, you know, there's some scholarly debate, believe it or not, about whether this... Um, this phrase here, wisdom and understanding, is the wisdom and understanding describing God, as I've been saying it does, or does it describe the people who receive it? Is it talking about an expression of those riches? I, as a Christian, I have the riches of God's grace, which includes wisdom and understanding. Or is it about God, who was wise and understanding in doing it? Okay, do you see the two, the two different ways of reading that text? And these scholars go on and on and on, like, no, no, it means this. And, this. and I'm like, it means both. Surely, surely it means God was wise. He, he looks at you, Victor, and says, oh, my son bled and died and rose again for you, my dear son. And I don't regret it for a single second. It was, it was a wonderful, glorious, triumphant, wise moment that I did. And all of heaven continually enthuses about the work of redemption. And although we still go back to our old taskmaster mindset of trying to do this and trying to, God's like, you look at the, look at the smile of the father over Jesus. When you look at Jesus' life, is he living, cowering, trying to do his best? No, he's the most relaxed person that's ever lived. He's already secure. He's safe. He's in the, in the beautiful, everlasting arms of his father who says this is my beloved son with whom i'm well pleased and he's getting baptized and i'm so proud of him i'm sorry son i didn't mean to embarrass you he's that kind of dad who is just almost over the top if i can say that without being irreverent he is not passive he's not cold he's not sitting there going i'm going to be controlled with my praise for you that is not our father. He's lavish with all wisdom and understanding. My final point is this. If you're anything like me, when, when, I, when I hear about grace and wisdom, it's, it's kind of concepts, right? The grace concept. But I need, I don't know if you agree with me, I change when I actually see things in people. You know, I see someone who's patient and then I kind of start to become patient or I see someone who's kind Anyone else here notice that in your life? You need to see people. A friend of mine recently, she said, she said growing up in her life, in her teenage years, she was incredibly drawn to just being with a certain family who loved Jesus. She said, this changed my life. She said, I would gladly not go to a nightclub. I would sit on a bus for an hour to just be with this family who loved Jesus and they had a sense of peace a sense of God's grace in their life. And it was like she was saying, I just could pick it up in my inner being. And it wasn't spectacular. They weren't famous. But over those years, I was so drawn to being with that family. Do you know why? 
is because you and I are hardwired to change, not just through concepts, but through seeing actual people who embody what I'm talking about. If you've got a, you're going to write this down, grace as a concept, grace needs a face. Grace needs a face. That's why in the Colossians passage, did you notice the very next verse after talking about Jesus giving us redemption, it says, he is the image of the invisible God. He is the image. That means you can see in God, you can see in Jesus what God is like in his actual being better than anywhere else in the world. Now, the reason I'm saying this is because, look with me here, Paul's getting very excited about this riches of God's grace that he's lavished on us. And we go, great, uh, grace sounds cool. Sounds, help me to understand it. And he says, says this in the previous verse, reverse with me back to verse six. And the last, he says, the last, it says, to the praise of his glorious grace, there it is again, which he has freely given us in the one, capital O, he loves. So what Paul is saying is, if you want to understand grace, he has freely given it to us in the person of Jesus. Like, it's, it's, grace isn't just a concept. If I'm just like, grace, 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 it won't move you. But if you think grace was in the person of Jesus, think about Jesus' life and you will understand grace. You know, Carl Jung the famous um, Swiss, I think, uh, psychologist and psychiatrist that wasn't a believer in a thing. He famously said that we only change through archetypes and an archetype is an image. What he's saying is we only change in this world through seeing a visual representation of who we're meant to be like. That we are those who are set free not to enjoy a concept you are set free to belong to another. That's why Isaiah 43, it says, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You belong to me. Listen, Israel was not just set free from something. They were set free for someone. For someone. What, what I'm trying to say is, you need to first of all spot the impact of your previous enslavement to sin but you need to see the face of jesus christ in your life with ever increasing accuracy what i'm trying to say is you know if you know me i'm not the most organized person if i could show you my desk right now many of you would have a heart attack i'm quite messy i'm sorry about that um but on this point, I want to be really firm with every one of you, even if you're zoning out now because it's hot. You need to be accurate in how you see Jesus. It is not okay to be sloppy in how you see Jesus. Like, as much as I can, I want to summon a, a fatherly, loving authority and say, it, don't give all your energy to focusing on accuracy in any other area more than understanding the nature of Jesus. You are joined to him. You are in him. You are temporarily, if you're married, physically joined for a short season on this earth with another person. You are cosmically, eternally joined with another being. And your understanding of his personality and his love for you and his extravagant 
zeal for your growing in freedom is all overwhelming. Like if you could actually plug it in, you'd be plugging your fingers into like the biggest nuclear power station that you'd blow up. Like he kindly gives it to you bit by bit. But I sense even as I'm finishing that some of you, I want to appeal to you. Like God is saying you need to, and he wants to almost have your face. You know, there's times where our fight with my daughters that I can physically see them like getting distracted by other things and comparing themselves and starting to hate themselves because they compare themselves with other people. And I literally, I will take their face at times gently, cup them in my hand and go, honey, darling, look at me. I love you. You are so beautiful. You are so wonderful. And I want you to agree with me. I do not want you to look to the left or to the right. I do not want you to endlessly beat yourself up. You are not perfect. But if you could even understand and taste 1% of your father's love for you, it would satisfy more than anything you can ever imagine. We need grace to have a face. This is why loving well one person at a time is beyond important. You might say, Tom, I'm a rubbish Christian. Well, do you know what? Join the boat. We all are a little bit. The point is you are beloved of God. It is not your performance. It is who lives in you, who is crazy about you, who is committed to you. And this is why I'm saying as a church, us realizing you don't need some big, incredibly um, extravagant strategy of mission. I remember talking to one woman who worked at a venue that we met at a lot in San Francisco. And she said, I really like you guys. I've been, I've interacted with other churches and honestly, they've been, they're so sort of over the top in trying to reinvent how you express Christianity. She said, why don't you just try being nice to people? She said, I actually trust you guys. I trust you. Now we're not perfect and I'm certainly not perfect, but she is seeing Grace has a face. She is seeing the amount of people who have turned away from Jesus because Christians have so grossly misrepresented God. I mean, we all do a bit, right? But if we can just actually by 1% grow in in agreeing with Jesus' now kindness over us and his love for us and relax into he actually loves me and I can love myself because he loves me. The opposite of that is I hate myself and that's not right. So I, I need to agree with his love for me. And therefore, as that starts to happen, we start to actually just love on people around us. As Brian was saying, it starts to become who we are. Grace needs to have a face. But be, my final point is this. God wants you to have eyes to see people all around you who represent healthy aspects of Jesus to you. What I'm trying to say is God is setting you up. I promise you. He's putting people around you either in this plant or through other places in the world. And there are men and women who will be representing specific parts of Jesus's kindness to you if you will have eyes to see them. You can't imagine Jesus just on your own. You've never seen him. But Jesus lives in other people. So this is my final practical point, And this is really important. Is I literally have a list of people who represent something particular about the personality of Jesus that I am particularly leaning into. 
So, for example, I tend to think of Jesus as very needy. I think Jesus needs a lot from me. I've always got that voice in my head, right? Is that true? No. Jesus is relaxed. He happens to be God. Colossians says he holds things all together. He doesn't need me to do anything. Now, that's a concept. I recently met a man who was doing a lawn. He was a gardener in my friend's house. He wasn't famous or anything. And I got talking to him, loves Jesus. And I felt God say, he is relaxed in his own skin. He doesn't need anything from you. He's perfect. He's actually content in God. And he's, he's interacting with you in a light way. But he's not like, he's not needing you to be anything for him. He's just relaxed. And I won't tell you his name, but I literally now, several times in a day, will just pause and imagine that man. Grace needs a face for Tom Shaw as much as anyone. And you can say that's crazy. It's not crazy. Paul says, imitate me to a church as I imitate Christ. You actually need people around you who embody specific areas of Jesus's personality. So my question then is, what, what wrong areas of Jesus might you see Jesus? What lie might you believe about your new task, about your new master? You might see him in one way. For example, another thing which I'll say is I tend to see Jesus as quite volatile. I can think Jesus reacts. And there's various reasons why that. Is Jesus volatile? Now, I know the concept. Jesus is slow to anger. But I literally have various men written down in my little diary thing, calendar, journal thing, that, re- that are particularly even-tempered. And, I, and I, I literally will be like, grace needs a face. I'm under a new, under, I'm under a new, I'm under a new yoke, a new partner. Jesus is not going to ever quickly flip. He's not quick to anger. And I need to see that in my mind by actually, I'm being discipled by these guys, even though they don't know it. And the joy is, is that that is the church of God. We need each other. We need each other. Let's pray, shall we? And Sean, if you could lead us in response, that would be great. Mm. Just take a moment. Take a moment. Thank you, Jesus. Wow. What good news, Jesus, that we have been redeemed. And the voice of pressure is not your voice. So right now, Jesus, as we just sing our final song in response, we I want to ask for this beautiful, beautiful group here, this family that you're bringing together for one more step today, just one more step in faith, in trust, to believe that you don't need us to step up, to be perfect, Lord, even now, whatever particular wrong impression of you that we have, would you just highlight it now? For me, it was, I, th- I think of Jesus as volatile or needy. Just take a moment. I think, that, I think Jesus might just want to highlight one wrong impression you have of him that's leading you to stay in a place of guardedness 
Just take a moment. Is there anything that anything coming to mind now that might be from him? A wrong impression. Hmm. Jesus, you're better than we can even begin to imagine. But we can imagine a lot. And we're invited to that. Would you grow our imaginations afresh? Breathe life onto our imaginations so that we would partner with you in going, I wonder if Jesus is actually really stable and really giving. And he doesn't have a huff. <laughs> I wonder if he is actually quite... I wonder if he likes me. As well as loves me. Because he kind of has to because he's God. I wonder if he actually knows me by name. Jesus. 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 We love you. We love you. Bless this people, Jesus. Bless this people as we re just rejoice that you're the most blessed one overflowing in blessing thank you jesus we love you thank you jesus